Welcome to season two of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. Two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Well, g'day, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I am Ben Pronk. And, and I am Tim Curtis, and I can confirm this is the Unforgiving 60 <laughs> podcast. And that I'm Ben Pronk. Uh, yeah, we can probably confirm right that. Cool. Our, our creds have been validated. Um, we've got a repeat offender today, Tim. I am ready once again to be the dumbest person in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> You've had a lot of practice <laughs> through your life being the dumbest person wherever you go. But um, yeah, we spoke with David only a couple of months ago mm-hmm. and basically ran out of time before we ran out of questions or, or good conversation. I ran out of intellect. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, Tim heard a click and a rush at the start of the episode. <laughs> he's, he's brilliant. He's awesome. I mean, the way he dissects problems is amazing. Yeah, no, really cool. And um thinking on some really, uh, I think, pertinent, relevant, important contemporary issues in the defence international relations space, which Mm. um, has provided some fertile email email exchanges over the last couple of weeks and led to this uh, new chat. And Mm. And not not just thinking, but also questioning. Yeah, and very much. I mean, in particular, he's interested in developing collaborative communications, and that was the genesis of, of this conversation. Um, about you know how we can do it better. How can we break down tribalism? How can we get better at um, uh, you know working together uh, against common problems? Mm. And my knowledge is dated, and maybe people will think our perspective, or maybe my perspective, is not completely right in this episode when we talk a little bit about innovation and whether the military does encourage it or whether it stifles it. And where there's a time and place for both. I, I think, mm. yeah, really enjoyable conversation as always. And I don't know that it'll be our last conversation with David Olney. Well, again, <laughs> I enjoy being the dumbest person. <laughs> so we've got to have him back. And we, uh, we, we have had some tremendous feedback on the previous episode. And if you haven't listened to David in our introductory episode with him, please go back and take a listen. Because what he, what he does talk about is really thought-provoking and absolutely transferable regardless of whether you're in a uniform or not. So if you haven't listened to that one, go off and do it and then come back and let's get on with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Unforgiving 60. I'm Ben Pronk and I'm joined by my co-host, Tim Curtis. Hello, Tim. G'day, Ben. And Tim and I are joined by David Olney. Now, we spoke with David a couple of weeks ago now and essentially we ran out of time before we ran out of good stuff to talk about. And um, through a a series of emails uh, over the last few weeks, we've decided to circle back for a re-attack. So, David, good morning. Good morning, Ben and Tim. (laughs) <laughs> Tim, you can say good morning to David. Good morning, David. <laughs> um, good morning, so, Tim. <laughs> to bring our <laughs> listeners up to speed with our, our email correspondence, David, why did we feel the need to, to come back and chat again? Well, I think it was I really felt the need initially and thought, I'll bug you guys whether you want me to bug you again or not. And thankfully, you're happy that I bugged you. <laughs> but it was a combination of things where the night before I'd been on with you guys, I'd listened to the two of you on Life on the Line talking about the collaborative environment at SAS and you know it was possible for people to be heard and people to put their two cents in and I was sitting there thinking okay this is really positive and interesting but I also know from my experience training people to brook lines that there's kind of an innate tribalism that is really hard to break and that even in task forces you can get people to work together but you've still got potential problems Mm. the next day uh, i was giving a lecture and a friend of mine who's a senior investigator at the ACCC came in and she was talking about how reflective an organization they are everything from the companies they're investigating why witnesses come in what they want to achieve as teams 
what they want to achieve as individuals. So they use reflection to get around hierarchy. And then that night I got a phone call from one of my former master's students who just finished at Duntroon and was all excited. He, you know, he's got the core he wants and he, he's all excited about the future, but had just gone into the regimental training mm-hmm. uh, that comes to be actually useful to people and was sort of saying to me, look, here I am in this environment where they're wanting me to ask questions, but I'm in a room where I'm the lowest person in the hierarchy. We're all the lowest people in the hierarchy. How do we do this in an appropriate way where we can get the most out of training, but also work within the structure of the environment? And that full circle got me back to, right, I need to talk to Ben and Tim about this thing of how do you transcend hierarchy to get better communications, training, collaboration, you know, in organizations where hierarchy is critical for the most extreme days of people's lives. Mm. So that's kind of my kickoff. And really, guys, I can pose the question if you like of, well, okay, tell me a little bit more about how collaboration does work at SAS or you guys can start somewhere else if you think there's a better point. Well, I reckon maybe if we start with that discussion from the the first Life on the Line interview with Alex Lloyd and that idea of collaboration within the unit. And I think a lot of what we were saying was relative to the wider army, but within the unit. So um, I think a lot of what we're talking about here is is kind of anchored in some of these social identity theory concepts where you've got very tight organisations, particularly in places like special operations. So if you think of how groups form, how groups bond, what brings people together, um, particularly from, you know, like Tafgel's sort of social identity theory lens, mm. then the, the shared hardship, the common, you know, rite of passage initiation sort of ceremony that a, a special forces selection course provides, the artifacts, the, the badges and the silly hats and all that sort of thing, all of these serve as very powerful instruments to, to bond a group of people together. And I think that that commonality within a unit can very much help to override some of the, the hierarchical separations that you might find in a, in a wider unit. So the strength of being a member of the SAS is arguably stronger than the strength of being a member of the officers club versus the, the NCO club. And so you get, I think, um, through that, that common social bond, um, uh, an association that allows a much more collaborative environment within the unit. However, the drama with that is that when you start playing with people outside that um, social in-group, then you often have the the us and them, the, the out-groups. You get the friction. Yeah. yeah, and so what I think and where I think uh, something like an understanding of social psychology is really important is to, to understand how we try and frame these groups. This is where we're seeing things like task groups, joint interagency task forces, teams of teams. If we can get the group identity to be that larger giatif, you know, so the multi-agency group, if we can reinforce or prime the members to believe they're a, a, a part of that group um, and, and reinforce the strength of that group over those individual tribal allegiances, then we get a little bit closer to um, having that collaborative environment in a multi-agency or multi-organisational environment. There's also an aspect of you know your earlier point, David, related to constrained thinking, and probably not much different to students doing their undergrad degree where there's an expectation that they do the research and give you the research back, not much latitude for creative thought. So too the military system, um, you know, the, the early training model, whether it's recruit training or the military college, they want you to be indoctrinated into the military way and it doesn't give you too many latitudes. And I'd argue that the latitudes then probably open up as you know, you come out and lead those small groups and maybe up to that company or squadron sized. But then the higher you go inside the military, my perception is that the latitudes then start to close down. So it's quite unusual and it's probably different to the corporate environment where you know, the on-ramp into the military sees you learn the way they want you to learn and you understand the value of walking up and down a parade ground. 
to use that particular metaphor, then you do get some latitudes as a junior leader and probably into company command, squadron command. But the higher you go, and particularly when you start to get you know, your one and two star generals, the expectation is that you show less latitude. So it's a bit peculiar in that context. And if you were to contrast that across to the corporate world, you'd say the reverse is true. You would, you would constantly get more leadership latitude the further you went up um, your hierarchy. Maybe with the, and I'm not suggesting for a second that the regulatory and legislative environment doesn't exist because clearly that does pro, uh, provide some limitations and constraints. But if, it, if you're the CEO of an ASX 200 company, your expectation by your shareholders and other stakeholders is that you show dynamism and that you are constantly trying to adapt your organisation to be innovative. I'm not entirely sure that expectation's there for our military strategic leadership. When you look at, say, Rob Scott in West Farmers, uh, try to think of the military example of that, like the the Air Force side deciding they're going to divest the, the transport fleet and sell it off, spin it off. You know, it just wouldn't exist. That kind of uh, autonomy, authority, uh, even if it made sense, um, would be almost impossible within that military environment. It's a good point, Tim. Mm. And the the operational environment probably is the place where you can show innovation. So I'm not sure that sitting inside a military course is the place where they want you to pick, you know, course of action three, that completely wacky, unconventional option. But when you're on operations, there is a need to constantly look at options to make sure that you are ahead of the problem, whether the problem is environment, whether the problem is enemy, whether the problem is, you know, sort of more internal frictions. So if you're investing on innovative thinking, the probably the return question to you, David, is when and where do you do it? Because in order to, provoke, uh, to promote that um, innovative thought on operations, you've got to invest in that before young leaders go on operations. And how do we do that if, in, if indeed our military training environment is so constrained that really all we want people to do is read the military doctrine, interpret it, and then present it back in a slightly different contextualised way? Yeah, I think this is something really important you guys have tapped into, that the latitude is actually at a junior to medium level. And then people have to go back into maintaining the orthodoxy of the institution because they are responsible for rolling the institution forward. And this is one of the things where I think people want to give the corporate world credit for very senior leaders actually having a lot of flexibility. But in the main, the more parts of the organisation there are and the more stakeholders they are and the more interconnected they are, they're stuck in exactly that same situation, that they can want to bring about change and often it looks crude in that they'll, you know, they'll sell off one part of the business, you know, cause a gaping hole uh, that causes all its own problems. But the only way they can actually act is to divorce from a component that is removable. And this whole thing of innovative thought, my experience in consultancy is exactly what you guys have just described in the military. The most innovative and effective people are junior to medium level leaders who actually are leading teams who still do the job. So in terms of high reliability organisations, all the work done by Carl Week, you know, where he looked at uh, aircraft carrier crews and people working in nuclear power plants, uh, people working in emergency wards and hospitals, the reality is the closer you are to the action, the front line of whatever's going on, the faster you see the new opportunity or the new problem and that what makes high reliability organisations unique is that the people who see the problem are the people who say there's a problem and are included in the process of solving the problem and then they brief everyone that we've got a solution and I trust it. And I so think, something that's largely missing in the corporate and military environment. Yeah, and I think part of this comes down to how we task people and this whole beautiful idea of mission command where you're, you're providing an intent uh, to a subordinate commander, you know, you're telling them the why but not the, the how. Um, potentially that is easier at those middle levels. I mean, quite obviously, the director of a hospital can't micromanage an emergency ward in the same way that, um, you know, a, a task group commander can't micromanage an SAS patrol um, sort of out of uh, immediate radio comms. But 
Um, and so, you know, you're, you're forced to provide that intent and um, uh, delegate the authority to make the, the decisions, either seize the fleeting opportunities, react to the unexpected contingencies down to those lower levels. But I wonder, as we get higher up, the great point that Tim just made, um, that we're not providing um, military's intent in the, the way that maybe it was done in the past. And if you hark back to those Clausewitzian maxims of uh, the military instrument being an extension of politics by another means, what we've seen in recent deployments is very little latitude on the kind of um, intent that's provided to the military. So you look at, at uh, I guess, that intervention into Libya, Afghanistan was another good example. We weren't providing the military with an intent particularly in the Australian case, we were providing them with a task, you know, go yeah. in and reconstruct that, that province, you know, and it was kind of like, what's the in order to statement? And without that clarity on the purpose of that mission, it becomes very hard to, to adapt to the environment. I mean, you know, the special operations example was a really good one. Um, you know, across the world, we we're playing whack-a-mole in this sort of terrorist uh, or, or sort of high-value targeting game. But what was the purpose of that and, you know, that idea of being able to uh, sort of analyse a purpose and come up with a potentially better way, I think was constrained in a lot of recent deployments. I have to wonder with this whether one of the big things that has impacted this is simply communications technology. The same thing that's happened with micromanaging within the corporate environment where you can essentially have surveillance over your people. If you can, you think it's a good idea. Whereas in reality, if we look at the bits of the corporate world that are doing the best, so if we look at, say, the conscious capitalism movement, you know, the companies that actually trust their employees to do the job properly because they've explained what the big strategic mission is. And the strategic mission is to both do well and do good. And that's very clear from day one. And once people understand it and once you've empowered them effectively, so you know, a wonderful example is the Southwest Airlines. An average day, the average employee gets very few instructions for anyone more senior to them because the idea is that if they've been well-trained, they know exactly what their job is. And unless there's something new to do, uh, they should be able to just get on with their job and be trusted. And there certainly isn't that trust you know, in most very hierarchical corporations. And there doesn't seem to be that gap anymore between a political elite who make the decision and the military who can get orders at senior level within minutes. So when you take away that thing of having any time to yourself, you also lose latitude, it seems to me. Mm. David, let's come back to this original question about collaborative communication and, and trying to break down silos in organisations that are working towards a common goal. I've got a question for you um, from uh, your knowledge on uh, complex adaptive systems theory. My understanding, I, I love the concept, I know nowhere near as much as you about it, but my understanding is that one of the, or two of the very few things that you can control within a complex system are the boundaries and the incentives that operate within the system. If we look at a, an interagency or a, a multi-agency task force through that sort of lens, what should we be doing to try and shape the boundaries and modify the incentives to um, create a better environment for collaborative communication? There have been a few things that have been tried, and probably the best book on this is a book by Gillian Tetlock uh, called The Silo Effect, where she looks at institutions that have been destroyed by silos and institutions that are aware that institutions like them have been destroyed and chosen to go down another path. And one of the fantastic examples in it is, you know, despite all the problems that Facebook has as a company, one of the fantastic things they do is every time new personnel turn up, they don't immediately go to the teams they're going to be in permanently. It's almost a bit like going through selection. They get stuck in a team with everyone else who started that month and that team gets given a project that whether it goes well or badly is not super critical, but they work on it only with the other people that just started. So you can have a totally imbalanced team full of very senior people in some areas, very junior and other, but they have to work together. Mm -hmm. So that the time you actually go to the bit of the organization you've been hired to work in, you already have 30 or 40 friends. And to and make a, sure a that you always understand. Yeah. 
you always understand that there's something more than your team and something they do and lots of tech companies do it but they do it better than anyone else is hackathons where they'll every month or so say look we've got this thing we need to fix ideally we need 50 people and we reckon four or five days of hardcore coding too much pizza and too much diet coke and we'll crack it and pretty much anyone in the organization can put their hand up and unless you are 36 hours from a deadline your team leader would have to make an argument why you can't go on a hackathon so it's a very deliberate thing to make sure that we keep getting something bigger than the team you believe you fit in so this is an example of changing the boundaries, isn't it? You, Precisely. And the incentives. The yeah, yeah, yeah and okay. The incentives. And that's probably a really good one because the mission focus, and this is, you know, we were speaking about uh, McChrystal and team of teams, having a really laser focus like a military operation gives you or a specific hackathon problem. Um, so we, we've changed the boundaries. We've, we've created a special task group, um, either in the Facebook or the, the Jayadav concept, and we've got a really focused mission with a clear incentive. Um, so these are things that will help sort of break down silos? They tend to work really well. And there's there's little things you can do too. Like the first time you get well, stuff I've done with different corporations and, and different military units. And that's the first time you get everyone together and you give them a problem. Don't let anyone talk. Make everyone in the room write down what they think the problem is and what they think the best place to start is and what they think the best solution would be. Mm. If you've got 30 people in the room, get 30 answers and then tape all those sheets up. No names. Ideally, you do it on the back wall so no one can see what the most senior person in the room did. It's called nominal group technique. Mm -hmm. The nominal group technique as a way, you know, you need to do it in the first two minutes. It needs to be the first thing. Here's what we think we're doing. You're all going to be working on it. How would you define the problem? Where do you think we start? And what do you think the solution might be? You have 10 minutes, no talking, no sharing. And you have to commit. You've, you've got to write something. There is no choice. If you don't, you basically, in an ideal situation, you throw anyone who won't out at that moment. Hmm. You make, is... If you will not participate, you are not appropriate for this environment. So we, we work with a lot of our corporate clients where there is um, or there are problems like groupthink and, and sort of confirmation bias in, in groups and we get very strong, um, you know, the loudest voice or the prototypical leader yeah. in a particular organisation might have a, a, a sort of overly biased influence on the group. And things like that, things like formalised ritual dissent techniques, red teaming, you know, nominated devil's advocates can be really um, great ways of, of overcoming that. And I think... You know, to our earlier conversation with Alex Lloyd that you cited at the start of this discussion, that's a big part of the the unit environment, um, what we used to call a, a Chinese parliament, which I still can't work out if that's politically incorrect or no longer valid, but the idea that, that everyone could contribute to a plan or a discussion, um, but then the, the nominated leader would have the final say, uh, that was kind of an ingrained um sort of part of the culture and and i think was a lot of what we were talking about with alex yeah, let me ask you let me ask, oh, sorry, ask the both you of you that. a question and maybe capturing that word bias ben but also bringing it back into the mccrystal team of team models so hypothetical it's the late 90s and you're at a military college and you've got this tactical exercise without troops and you present a model that looks like mccrystal uh, rolled out in Iraq 2004 and beyond. How do you reckon you would have been scored for that solution? Well, first of all, I'm going to fight the white on this because I don't reckon on your little orbat that you would have been given at the start of that shoot, that tactical exercise without troops, you would have even had the intelligence agencies or the non-government agencies or you know the, the tanks, the fighters, the special ops, the etc. etc. That that McChrystal did. H however, you could always go to your instructor and ask to to get access yep. to that, and, and say so, hypothetically you did, and say <laughs> hypothetically you got it. So Captain Curtis, my my directing staff has given me all this stuff. I reckon, um, and I reckon this is the fundamental problem with a lot of training of this nature and leadership training in particular, is that unless that directing staff has the the latitude of thought, you know, to, to be able to um, consider a, an out-of-the-box solution like that. I reckon you'd That fail. we've never seen before? 
yeah. that we've never seen before. Yep. And, and oh, by the way, there's no approvals, there's no reporting. If your sub-tactical leader decides they want to go and do another hit in two minutes' time, they're going to go and do that. There are few controls. Boundaries, yes, but maybe few controls. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, I think you're right. I think it it's a really good example of, um, and, you know, to give McChrystal the, the credit that's due, of, of being able to pioneer a relatively mm. innovative um, uh, a form of, of prosecuting military operations. And, David, if you were in the room when that solution was given as the, you know, civilian academic looking through the lens of complexity, how would you score a McChrystal model in the late 90s? Well, the first thing I'd say as you guys started having the discussion is, chaps, Black Hawk Down. You've already been there. Mm. It's already happened. Probably so, not to the level of, you know, just the, the integration of the non-military, non-special No, but there was operations. no integration. That's my point. <laughs> so this would be the reason to say, you know, as a civilian, to be jumping up and down and going, you should be doing this. Oh, well, okay. Well, I mean, let's go back to, to Desert One. I mean, the start of JSOC, mm. you know, that we've learnt this, we've, we've been to this dance mm. before. There's plenty of examples where interagency uh, cooperation was needed but ignored or marginalised that led to unsuccessful operations. Yeah, mm. this is the problem, and you guys are exactly right, that you only get at the end of your training what the person who is doing the training had in mind at the beginning. Yeah, you know, yeah they just define great, it. great point at the start that, yeah. Yeah. So, and yeah, so sorry, coming so, coming back to the learning environment, which is where we jumped off into you know some of the biases and where we would have been pre two thousand and four if someone presented a completely decentralised, albeit task force centric model, aren't we therefore getting the learning wrong, David? Where we've got this opportunity in a low risk, arguably a no risk environment, for a lot of creative thought and to promote and stimulate some great conversations, thinking out of the box that we, particularly in some of our military schools, albeit my, uh, my knowledge is somewhat dated, that we don't really seize and capture this, but rather we wait for people to get on operations where there is absolute necessity, but they've never been practised in creative thought. Yeah, it's a monumental problem. It's a monumental problem within universities as well. It's a problem everywhere because the body of knowledge that is deemed essential in most areas now that we have access to so much information is so large that people fixate on the, you need to know this, you need to know this, you need to know this. Whereas my argument would be teaching what I teach. No, what you need to know most of the time is how to learn. Mm. And while you're learning how to learn, you also need to learn how to teach. And as long as you get those two, okay, you're going to need to learn to do a lot more formal things in a military environment because you're just going to need them there you're in your head ready on the day that the comms don't work and you've only got 10 seconds. But for the vast majority of environments, we're living in a deluded sort of warped time where we still think that cramming tons of garbage in our heads that might be useful one day will be useful. So the idea, you know, you're sitting in a lecture in the 1990s. The person at the front of the room is an expert because they have read the only nine books on the topic ever written in the last mm. 2,000 years. Yawn, I can get them all on Google Books or Google, you know, Gutenberg. Mm. What mm. I need to know from that person is how to interpret it, not to be given three or five or nine or 12 hours of quotes. I can go mm. find the quotes in 30 seconds, even as a blind person. So fundamentally, there's there's a failure in education to recognize that you know how to learn and how to teach are the most important things and then you need to determine okay if you don't have technology what things do you absolutely need and to distinguish the difference between here are things you absolutely need and here is us keeping you cognitively adaptable because if we stop you being cognitively adaptable we won't be able to promote you because you'll hit the wall hmm. and you'll stop being useful which should be a monumental problem. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes we see the exact opposite of that occurring. Um, David, have you ever come across Anne-Marie Grisagono? 
No, but I love the name. It's a good name, and she's Great a, a name. brilliant complexity science scientist that works in defence. But she did a little bit of work um, on these things called micro-world experiments. Now, I don't know if you've read Logic of Failure, a guy called Dietrich Dorner talking about oh, yeah. sort of... Oh, yeah, recognise the name. Yep. Okay. Um, he ran this, this sort of landmark series of what he called micro-worlds. So you, as a participant, would be given a small African nation... And, um, you know, you'd need to sort of balance the investment in agriculture versus, you know, uh, sort of water usage, these kind of big macroeconomic problems. But the the interesting thing about it was that he'd purposely built in a lot of lag effects into this. Um, He'd purposely built in a lot of... um, uh, sort of non-immediate feedback loops. And so people who would uh, do what he called sort of the thermostat effect, you know, it's not enough water, crank up the dams, too much water, mm. crank down the dams and, and do that sort of ballistic thinking um, would would spiral this country in the ground. But people who would uh, sort of delay that that sort of premature convergence and, and try to uh, assess this, the environment and, and get a much more measured response would be ultimately rewarded. And uh, Grisogono developed some of these within a military context, so looking at a counterinsurgency sort of scenario over that same type of um, time frame. You know, your, your military intervention, does that have a negative effect on the, the civilian population in six months? These kind of, um, uh, I, I guess, you know, complex, complex problems, but uh, what I thought was a very mature way of, of um, training people to think inside of that instead of uh, reacting to the immediate um, sort of situation in front of them. Great idea getting them to see that there's consequences. The problem with it, again, is the time compression is happening to everyone. So you've been given an artificial world where you can pretend you're doing a few years and a few minutes. That is giving them a perspective they won't be given in reality. So you're asking them to think about variables they won't encounter in their six or eight month tour. Mm. Those variables are the kind of things that people from Colonel and up, senior management and up, should be looking at so that the intent of the orders have taken that into consideration. So uh, a great way to, to understand this uh, from sort of an economics perspective. Uh, wonderful book called The Affluent Society, written by John Kenneth Galbraith. Galbraith is the person who coined the term conventional wisdom. And his explanation of it is fantastic. Conventional wisdom is what you believe after something's happened, after you've worked it out. It's the belief you hold about something that has already happened that may not happen today and probably won't happen tomorrow. So we live in conventional wisdom. So what you're always trying to do is get people out of conventional wisdom. But I think there's a far easier way to do it. And it's a thing called reference class forecasting. And in any situation you go, how is this similar to something I've done before in these, these and these ways? More importantly, though, how is it different to anything I've done before? And you must acknowledge the difference before taking action. Yeah. And this, I mean, we just spoke about Dorna. He talks about this concept of methodism, which if I can remember it, it's the unthinking application of a previously successful intervention into an ostensibly similar situation so yeah it's conventional wisdom defined differently yeah that's why i I added it in yes but also you know that human tendency to to want pattern recognition you know you see something you get that bit of confirmation bias yeah i've seen this before i know how to how to fix this and you launch in with that that sort of um uh, methodism approach and he cites the chernobyl disaster as being an example of it you know experts are particularly prone to this because they've just had that reinforcement they're very smart they're very good at what they do they've done it a million times they're often blind to those weak signals to say that that million and first time is slightly different and that point that you just raised about well what is different about this environment and to, to Grisogono's point, she encourages us to think, how would I know I was wrong about this? You know, looking for yeah. those weak, disconfirming pieces of evidence, that's the, the crux to, to sort of um, defeat Methodism. And it would seem to me that, you know, if you're the junior officers and you're going through training and you bring those things up, you really need to know it's a safe environment where you can. So where you guys were talking about this idea of the Chinese parliament, you know, here is the time to get everything said that you think is relevant. And then we'll get on with orders and act, you know, and action. 
is there any way do you think in hierarchical organizations even if you use a color code system you know so green light is say everything you think is relevant you know if the orange light is on make sure it's very much absolutely relevant and if the green light's on well i don't care whatever colors we use one color has to be you can say anything you like one color is be a bit careful and one color is no now just get the job done Mm. is there any room to use something as simple as a color coding system and habituate people to these behaviors go with this color look any of those sort of things that reinforce and it's like these nominated devil's advocates and that sort of stuff anything that reinforces that now's the time where you know anything goes where we're in this Mm. design divergent thinking sort of space um, where we want to just get as much uh, as many different opinions as we can and then yeah i think that that idea of being able to to actually tangibly say okay now I've made my decision, we're going to go up the guts with lots of smoke and now's not the time to, to say, well, what about the left flanker? Mm. Yeah, I'd, all, I'd, argue that's all, I'd argue that's always been there, just not necessarily in a, you know, red, amber, green light, nor haptic feedback. You know, you read the cues of the room, you read the cues of your leader and there comes a time where they say, okay, got all your feedback. Thanks very much. This but, is what we're doing. But here's where Tim's chute tactical exercise without troops which is a, a test um, at RMC the, the example I used before um, that's a great example where you are heavily disincentivized to come up with anything unconventional that should be the environment of divergent thought you know you're in a training environment you're on a hill in no, the I'll, I'll jump in and say no it shouldn't there should be two tests mm-hmm. there should be a test to show can you do what a small unit leader has always done so that mm-hmm. they can fit effectively within a larger activity. Mm-hmm. Now, that's something we're going to test you on, and that might even be 60% of the final marks. Mm-hmm. But the 40% one is going to be, now do something interesting to learn. Great point. And what I want to see you is learning. And if you break it, I don't care that you broke it. I care, can you work out how you broke it and why you wouldn't do that again and why you would do something different? Yep. So you and, need both. It's yeah. all about both simultaneously or both in parallel. The, the point I was going to make is you don't want to have the disincentive of having to come back and redo the shoot on your weekend, which was the, the case if you failed the shoot at yeah, RMC. Right. But yeah. I love that. And, I mean, let's not forget that a lot, particularly in a military environment, but I think across all environments, there are times and places for latitude of thought. And I've, I've always thought parachuting is a really great example. Um, static line parachutes, you can virtually not steer Mm. and it's deliberately designed that way because if you've got 200 parachutists in the air if everyone's a little unique snowflake that can go around the sky wherever they want chaos chaos. Mm. Um, but if you've got a group of six people inserting in a hey-ho profile you know somewhere then you want them to have the ability and they've got the extra training and that sort of stuff so yeah there are times i like your two-speed idea where you need to just learn how to be leading a platoon attack as part of a battalion advance and there are other times where you you might want to have that well do we even need to attack the hill at all can we talk this out or or use but a, a social media attack mm. the collaborate collaboration yeah. cooperation and innovation that we were talking about before one of the most exciting things that um, energized me in the recent past was this really positive discussion about exchanges between the military and big business and you know kind of stand fast things like security clearances which are overcomable I think that there's a lot to gain from that for a military person at the right rank to be embedded inside you know one of Australia's top listed companies or fortune 100 wherever you happen to be in the world and the reverse is true because you think about the, well, for a variety of reasons. One, they think completely differently. Their cultures are completely different. There are definite values to be had for a military person to come into an environment, you know, take, for example, oil, gas or mining, where every single day there's pit to port, air operations, complex supply chains, a range of different inputs, and of course, profit motive. And if we superimpose that back into the military operating environment, it's not so isolationist as we saw back in, you know, early 1900s, mid-1900s. The military operation environment is now indelibly entwined into civilian support, particularly procurement, logistics, supply chain, and all things beyond. I wonder if there's not 
a real place for something like that to you know draw out some innovation this would seem like the place where for things like emergency relief and other activities that would be your place to start starting with civilian organizations volunteer organizations defense helping with things like logistics ideally what was meant to happen with the fires over summer Mm. unfortunately no one told anyone senior in defense or fire that that was going to happen but it seems that's your place to start we we recently spoke with beth eggleston about very similar sort of topics that um there are a lot of environments particularly in she works in ngos and a lot of disaster relief sort of environments uh where there is endless room for collaboration between civilian and military organizations but not always the the sort of cultural wherewithal to make it happen seamlessly and the impact of the military on aid humanitarian and development uh, operations if not closely coordinated can be dramatic yeah well then we get into the question of are we going to end up with private security companies providing the security for aid operations in places that are you know non-permissive environments well that already so you happens. Get into all sorts of yeah yeah that already happens and including for diplomatic missions mm. um, you know including the Australian government um, and others they have privatized their security arrangements but but sort of sit that to one side and I wanted to ask another question on the contemporary operating environment what are the frictions in modern day operations that you're seeing I mean we've had exposures that have watched this peculiarity of generational difference and of course technology but as you as you look forward David what do you think we need to be mindful of what changes in the operating environment and and not just the military operating environment but the more contemporary business operating environment what changes do you think are coming or maybe they've already arrived I, I think in a sense they've already arrived I think technology sped everything up and has caused too many people to be doing busy work it's also caused too many people to think they can micromanage because the technology lets them i think actually the most important set of ideas going around at the moment is actually an old set of ideas from the 1970s and 1980s and that's all robert greenleaf's work on servant leadership this idea that real leaders should be basically working out what we're meant to do and why we're meant to do it and then empowering everyone else to get on with it and then essentially leaving them alone to get on with it so they know they're trusted because trusted people's productivity is so much higher and I think, in a sense, everyone being stuck at home because of COVID, anyone who wants to try and micromanage their staff now has to be overt and jump on Zoom or Skype and bug them. Anyone who's trusted will have a check-in every couple of days. Hey, how are you going? And not much more will be needed. We're actually seeing the beginning of a fundamental shift in people are going to have to articulate the mission better because they're not seeing everyone every day in the office. And, yeah. you know, bosses are going to have to trust people more because most people would rather go to work and do a good job, which means you can actually trust them because they want to do something meaningful and effective. And I think if we get those changes right, technology is a tool that's nothing more and we'll use it better if, you know, bosses don't have to do surveillance and staff can just get on with their job. But it's changing that gear of making sure that people who are promoted can actually conceive of what are we meant to do? Why are we doing it? And that is lacking in so many organisations. That old thing of saying that most people are promoted one level above their actual competence. You know, I, I've seen that too much in the corporate world. People who are brilliant at the level before the final promotion. And because they've been promoted and they're not really given the time or support to get to the new level, they start micromanaging, they start worrying, they start stressing, they start getting in people's faces. It ends up reducing the productivity of the team below them. And that's just so normal in so many organisations. And that's not a technological or innovation problem. It's a people management problem. And it's always going to come back to this. And the more we time compress, the more we put 50 interruptions in, 10 different platforms to work on, the more the even the capable person is going to be frayed. So they've got to know they can do their bit of the job without being driven mad by 100 interruptions. And I think we also need to train our leaders a little better. I think that point you've just made um, in many ways is symptomatic of a system that um, 
assumes that good leadership is something you get by osmosis after spending a bunch of time in a job. So, you know, that idea of joining, you know, pick your industry, an oil and gas company, joining a law firm and being excellent at that job that you've been hired to do, and then at some point just being expected, okay, now you transition into a leadership role, you know, we assume by magic or osmosis that you're going to be excellent at uh, providing that kind of um, direction, the, the kind of missions that you just spoke about, David, uh, and managing people without any specialised training. I mean, it's folly and we set people up for failure in that respect. Yeah, there's a fascinating video done by a young military psychologist at West Point, Murphy Danahy, where he has the guts to stand up at West Point and say, the US basically hasn't won a war since World War II. Why? Huge budget, huge numbers of people, plenty of time to work stuff out. And he, from a psychological perspective, comes down to the biggest thing is that you could win World War II with cognitively conservative people because large activities were just an extension of small activities. Every war since World War II has been less like that. The big picture job of a senior officer is less and less like a junior officer's job every war. And he's argued for there need to be two streams in recruitment and training for the very cognitively adaptive and the very cognitively conservative because what happens consistently when they look back at the psych testing of who leaves the US Army early in their career, bored or frustrated out of their minds, it's the most cognitively adaptive people mm. in the room. They either make it to special operations or they leave. It's that simple. And the same thing is true with the corporate world. Your innovators leave within 10 years and do a startup that will never do as well as if those ideas had been unleashed in the big company. <laughs> but their ideas will never be taken seriously in the big company. And the whole innovation thing, there's a, a wonderful Swedish book called The Innovation Illusion. <laughs> but their argument is, if we're all working this hard and productivity really is increasing, what's innovation actually doing? <laughs> and I'm inclined to agree with them that the fact most of the frustrated people I talk to when I train teams, you know, it doesn't matter if it's in a military organization, are the most cognitively adaptive people in the room. And that's why they're frustrated. And that if there's a single thing you can do, it's identify the cognitively adaptable and find them tasks to do that engage them. Fine, they have to conform to hierarchy to some degree, but you can't cripple them with it and you can't lose them over it because the organisation will always be less as a consequence. Mm. That's a hard one because you know, Murphy Danny sounds so nervous as he's saying this in front of senior people at West Point, I would not like to have been him that day. And he makes the point that, you know, realistically, except for the special operations generals, you know, promoted in Iraq and Afghanistan, look at the underperformance of most of the rest. Hmm. For every question I ask of and every answer you give, I've got 10 more questions. I'm, I'm wondering <laughs> if we can't reset again and come back for episode three with you, David. I think we just make it a six-monthly thing or something, eh? That sounds like a fun plan. I reckon that's a go. We'll, we'll put it in the diary. But look, again, David, thank you for your time. Thank you for your input. To, to Tim's point, I think it's probably given us more questions uh, to, to ask for next time. But it's always great to chat, mate. Oh, thank you, both of you. It's always a pleasure to be on with you. Thanks, man. See you next time. Bye. Looks like another night on the bottle. Like my back's against wall. It's for our fan. I can't beat you there. I'll make you win. I'll leave you warm inside Thank you.
Now to the debrief. We relentlessly pursue excellence on Unforgiving 60 and we want your insights and feedback. And indeed, if you know someone who has great insights to share with us that have a practical difference, then get in touch with us at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's unforgiving60.com. We love speaking to anyone who's been walking on the path less traveled and is generally living the life less ordinary. And if you like the podcast, please rate us on iTunes. You can also follow us on social media. Just search at Unforgiving60, that's Unforgiving60. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, you know what to do. See you next episode on the Unforgiving60.